Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, please take a seat. It is so good to be together. Like Elliot said, we don't take for granted the gathering, right? It is our favorite thing to do to be together in the house. If you are online, we welcome you. We hope to see you in person soon, but we're so glad you're joining us. So I'm going to jump right in. We are in a series called Build Your Church, obviously based on that song that we just sang, and Pastor Doug started the series last week with an incredible word about how the gospel isn't just about at the end of your timeline if you go up or down, heaven or hell, right? He talked about how the gospel is actually the totality of the life of Jesus, of everything that Jesus did, whether before, at, or after the cross. That's the gospel, and that's what we're building our church on, right? And so today we're going to go right into the book of Ephesians. And, and what I love about the book of Ephesians is actually Paul kind of highlights all the Gospels. And so if we're building on what Jesus did in the Gospels, it's nice to have a book that's kind of like the cliff notes. I don't know, I think the next generation called it Pink Monkey. There's a website. But when I was in school, we had real books that we bought. And they were, they were called cliffs, cliff notes. And it was how we didn't buy the actual real book, but you could still pass the test. You got all the highlighted information you needed without doing all of the work. Ephesians is kind of like that. Now, disclaimer, I still want you to read all of the Gospels, but if you're like in a bind and you want to know something about them, read Ephesians. Six quick chapters, and it gives you all the highlights to pass the test. But really, Ephesians is that synopsis of the Gospel, right? It takes what happened before the cross at the cross and after the cross, but how it pertains to us, right? He's writing this letter. Paul's in a prison. He's in Rome, and he's writing a letter not to just any group of people in any city. He's writing a letter to a church, to a group of believers in and around Ephesus. So when we look at this, and it's the highlights, when it's kind of that synopsis, it goes from taking us from death right, because we were all dead before we were in Christ Jesus. So taking us from death into life, into how we walk out that life in Jesus, from who we were to who we are to what we do with our identity. That's what the book of Ephesians does. And I, I just love, I love how we can get that kind of, like I said, in that synopsis, that cliff note. So we're going to jump right into chapter 2 of Ephesians today. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, and you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, he, in, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God. How many of you love a good but God in the Bible because you know something good is about to come? But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once 
far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is where we're gonna camp today. We're gonna jump down to verse 19 through 22, the end of the chapter. This is our key scripture for today. And I just love this. Listen, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole, in him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that as we even were able to proclaim this morning, God, you are the one building your church. You are the cornerstone that we are building upon. So this morning, God, we're here to just say we're gonna show up because you showed up. We know you're already here in this place, you're already moving this morning, and so God, just open our hearts, open our minds, have your way, not my way this morning, but your way, and again, Lord, I just pray that we show up with all of our hearts right now because you're showing up with all of yours. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so God is building his church. He is doing it. The Bible says unless he builds the church, we labor in vain, right? But, but as if we are the church, we know that we actually actively participate in building it. In a lot of commentaries, Ephesians is actually called um, the book of instruction for Christian living. So if you didn't know what you're supposed to do as a Christian, again, read Ephesians. But I love that what Paul is doing is he's encouraging his church, that's already the church, on how to be the church. It sounds redundant, but that just shows that it's something that he's always building. It's something that is always growing. We're not stagnant. He's actively building you. He's actively building the church. And in this scripture, verse 19 through 22, it says that we're citizens. Right, so as citizens, we are under the rule of his kingdom, right? It says that we're members of his household. So as members of his household, we actually are covered by his love. We're one family. And it's his very dwelling place, right? Jesus inhabits us. So those are the three things I want to unpack this morning, starting with the first, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of faith, the translation says, right? The kingdom of God. And let me ask you this. What is Jesus king of? You can, tell, you can answer. What is Jesus king of? Yes. Thank you, Karen. Everything. Jesus is king of everything. It's not a trick question. I'm sorry if it seemed like it, but he is king of everything. So that means he's king of, he's king of Denver. He's king of Colorado. He's king of Centennial. He's king of wherever it is you moved here from, wherever it is you live. He's king of that. If he is king, there must be a kingdom right? There must be a kingdom. But if he's king of everything, why don't we see it, right? We walk outside of these doors and there's a different reality that's going to hit you in the face. There's a different reality because to the world, he's not king. To the world, something, someone else rules. I read it when I was reading, you know, the beginning of chapter two there, you were dead in your sins, ruled by a power of darkness, right? 1 John 5 19, it says this, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. A more familiar scripture, Ephesians 6, it says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, 
right? We fight against principalities. It says this, the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces in the evil and heavenly realms. There's an enemy. And I don't want to... I don't want to over-focus on the enemy. I don't want to give Satan some things that he's, you know, give him credit for things that aren't due to him. But I do want to start by acknowledging that there is a kingdom of darkness and we were part of it. Right? We sang it today. We sang that our enemies can't prevail. We sang this song, right? I'm going to see a victory. A victory over what? Who is our enemy that is coming against us? Because if we live with our heads in the sand that there's not an enemy, we don't know who we're battling and we don't know what we're fighting for, right? We don't know the tactics that are coming against us. And as citizens of heaven, I believe that it's our responsibility to know who our enemy is, right? Ephesians 2, it says, once you were dead, right, in bondage of sin, but now you are citizens of heaven, right? And so it's our responsibility, it's our privilege to say whatever rules out there, okay, not here. Not here, not in my family, not in my household, not in my church, not in my relationships, not anywhere my foot strikes the ground will the kingdom of darkness reign. Only the kingdom of heaven gets to reign because I'm a citizen of heaven. And I'm, I'm wondering today what it would look like if we lived that way. What would it look like, church, what would it look like if we lived like Jesus was king of every area of our lives? Every area of our lives. If we lived in such a manner that showed he is king. And I want to go to a scripture I feel so provoked to to share this, to challenge us in this today because it's become a real practice in my life. I am done living for things less than what God has for me. I am done settling for fighting the same battle over and over and over. Come on, church, I am done saying, you know what? This is just my lot. This is just the way I am. This is just the, the way my family's always been. This is just the circumstance. I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I am ready to aggressively go after what is rightfully mine as a citizen of heaven, right? We have rights. We have rights. I, I studied a lot about what it meant to be a citizen in the United States, and there are some things that we have rights to. And if I went around and asked you, I think you can name some of those. But can you name what you have a right to as a citizen of heaven? Can you do that? So this morning, let's look at Matthew 16. It's, it's what we sang in that last song. We'll start in verse 15 here. It says, but what about you? Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Your ears should be open right now. You should perk up a little in your seat. He said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's telling us how you unlock the kingdom of heaven. 
So we should be on the edge of our seats. What do we have to do? This is what it says. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we, we build our, our church on the knowledge, right, that Jesus is king and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And gates in scripture, they actually represent a place of authority. So if you were to visit a city at the time, the gates would be where the authorities gathered, where they assembled and made decisions. The gates would be where they made their decrees. And so it doesn't say the gates of hell being the place of eternal damnation for Satan, right? That's not what it's saying. It says the gates of Hades, that there's a place of authority of darkness that wants to come against you. But what does it say? It will not prevail. It will not overcome. That where there are believers, where there's the church of Christ, whatever the enemy wants to send against us, it will not prevail, right? It cannot withstand, right? It can't have victory over us. And I feel like this has become one of the most maybe watered down scriptures that familiarity has diluted it a little bit, that we're so used to saying the gates of hell will not prevail. But if we get a true conviction of it, let's get a true conviction of it. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. He is not just building his church. He's building you, his people, right? And the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. They cannot prevail against you. We have struggles. We have hardships. The Bible actually guarantees it. It promises it. But we know the end of the story. We know that there's victory in the end, You know, I think about um, in 2016 when your Broncos won the Super Bowl, there was a million-person parade. A million people showed up to celebrate the victory of the Broncos, right? And can you imagine you show up to this parade and you're all dressed in your blue and orange, your face is painted, you're excited, you're screaming. Pastor Tasha's like next to you, just as loud and crazy as you could possibly imagine. And you're expecting the crowds, right? The crowds, the people to be excited and they're like, yeah. They're walking around a little bit how we walk around sometimes. I saw the scoreboard at the end. And yeah, they won, but you know, in the first quarter, we were only up by 10. And I was hoping it was gonna be a blowout and we didn't win when I wanted us to win. And so I'm just feeling, feeling a little defeated. No, like that is not what happens, right? You knew the end of the game and so you showed up to celebrate. I say you're Broncos because I am a Seahawks fan. I celebrate with you, however, and I'll celebrate the victories God has in your life, even if they're not mine, right? That's just biblical. But really, it, 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 it sounds silly, right? But we are more readily set to celebrate a sports team than we are the truth of what Jesus is doing. Right? Where we, we see something in the natural that we can rah-rah and get behind, yet we stand in here and think it's awkward to raise our hands in prayer. Right? We give our glory to the things that the masses do. But what about privately? Even if we don't see the victory yet, even if it's only the first quarter, will we give God glory? Right? And so, as, as citizens, we do have a civic duty. In Mark 16, 19, it says that that assignment 
is to bind and loose. We mirror the, re the reality of heaven here on earth. It's our commission as citizens. It's our civic responsibility. We partner with God to bring his reality onto earth. He's literally given us the playbook to see transformation in our lives, our families, our cities. He says, bind here on earth and it will be bound in heaven. An actual better literal translation says, bind on earth and it will already be bound in heaven. Loosen on earth and it will already be loosed in heaven. It's already done. So this is our commission as citizens. In Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. I will build my ecclesia. That's the Greek word that is used there. He didn't use the word for religious gathering. He didn't use a word of synagogue or temple. Jesus actually used the word ecclesia, which is a political term. And it's a term that they would have understood then because ecclesia means where there is a government, a nation, somewhere, but at a different location, two or more people, two or more citizens of that nation come together. They represent the authority of that nation, of the nation that they are citizens of. So they would have understood this because we know the Roman Empire controlled most of that region at the time. And so although they were not in Rome, where two or more Roman authorities gathered together, citizens of Rome, they had governmental mandate. We are the ecclesia of the kingdom of God. We are the church. We are citizens of heaven. So where two or more of us gather, we actually have authority. We have the ability to exercise governmental mandate. We actually get to change what is allowed, what there's authority for, exactly where we stand, no matter where we are. And so we should ask ourselves, if it doesn't exist in heaven, should it exist on earth? Nope. If it doesn't exist on heaven, it should not exist on earth. We bind those things up. We say, no more, not here. I will come together with another believer. I will stand in the authority that I have as the citizen of heaven. And I will say death, destruction, loss, depression, right? Conflict, dysfunction, anxiety, all of it. There is no place for it to stand in this kingdom because it does not stand in heaven, right? We bind those things. I love what, I love what Yvette said on Tuesday night. She said, we got to get an attitude about it. We got to get indignant about it. We should be mad about this and we should bind these things up. I love this. She said, you stand up in the devil's face and you tell him what's yours and you snatch it back, right? We gotta get a tenacity about how we pray. We gotta get some swag and, and I have no swag and I am not ashamed of it, but my husband has lots, so I pray with him all the time. But we gotta get some swag about how we go about this. It's not, okay, Jesus, please don't let, no. We are binding things in the power of Christ that are not in heaven. If they don't infiltrate heaven, they should not infiltrate your life. That is the reality as a citizen of heaven. And what about loosening things? What about releasing things? I think it's pretty easy to identify what we're supposed to bind because it's the things that steal life, rob us from joy. It's the things that keep us up at night. It's the things that we weep over. But what about the things that are supposed to be freely given, right, and active in the kingdom of heaven. 
Do we know our rights as citizens of heaven? You know, I believe that sometimes we become fearful of the times that we live in, that we see obstacles to the gospel and it, it makes us a little fearful. We see a small accomplishment of the kingdom of darkness and it causes us to be a little bit intimidated. And so what we do is we just have a prayer life that is a reaction to the works of the enemy instead of a prayer life that is in response to what the Father is telling us, right? We let the enemy set the agenda of our prayer lives, and yes, we do respond to the enemy, we do bind things, but are we aware of the agenda that the Father is setting for our lives? Are we spending time praying into that? Are we spending time really understanding what we have access to, right? We loosen what Jesus loosened. We release what Jesus released. So we release healings. We release reconciliation in relationships. We release life, health, sound minds, peace. The list goes on and on and on. If you saw Jesus do it, you have authority to do it. You have the right to it. It is yours because you are a citizen of heaven, right? And we can't stumble into this. We have to go aggressively after it because it feels foreign to our flesh. But it's natural to our spirits when we are fully submitted to Jesus. You know, I think of my, my grandmother. We call her Lola. Um, she was... She's an American citizen, but when she was very young, she moved to the Philippines. And she was raised in the Philippines until she moved back to the States as a young adult. And so my whole life, I knew, I know my grandma, she's living, um, but I knew her to be pretty quiet, um, reserved, at, at times maybe withdrawn. And I just thought maybe that was part of who she was. She's not one to really speak up, advocate for herself, um, does not use a lot of language with us. What I realized though, is you put her in a room with some other Tagalog speakers, and oh my goodness, she comes to life, right? She is just like the life of the party, her phones, we call her the mayor sometimes because her phone's like always ringing, and she's talking to all these people in Tagalog because that's what she's comfortable with, right? She's actually more comfortable in a culture from a nation where she's not a citizen, where she's a foreigner, but it's what she was familiar with. And she's more uncomfortable in a culture, a nation where she actually has citizenship. And so although she might have friends, she might have a nice social life, in that culture where they speak her language, she doesn't have access to healthcare. She can't vote. She doesn't get social security. She doesn't get the entitlement that citizenship, the status of that brings her in a culture she's actually unfamiliar with. And church, I think we live that way sometimes. I think we, we're, we were part of this, this kingdom of darkness for a long time, but now we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we more readily understand the former kingdom. It's in our face every day, right? We see it every day, so we settle for it. We settle for it. And this morning, it's just my heart that we would stop settling for less than what God has for you. We would stop settling. 
I don't think there's anyone in this room as a citizen of the states that would have been okay if they didn't get their stimulus check this year. Right? Because it mattered to us. Because we could see it in our bank account. I know some people that didn't get their check and and I remember talking to them and they said, well, I got this letter, but then I didn't get a check, so I had to spend all day on the phone making sure I got my check. Because it was their right. I think we settle sometimes because we're not willing to spend all day on the phone to the throne room. Say, I got to get what was supposed to be mine. He says, I'm giving you keys to unlock the kingdom of heaven. Will you use your rightful, your rightful obligation to use those keys to bind and to loose? So yeah, we we play a very specific and prescriptive role when he's building his church as citizens, but we are also members of his household. We're members of his household. That means we're part of his family. Um, Last week we were were at a graduation party and it was a ton of fun and and our kids were there and there's some other kids there and we were ready to go. So we said to our kids, all right, let's head to the car and we're walking to the car and I look over and where's my son? I can't find him anywhere. I've got a, a beautiful, incredibly smart, gifted five-year-old son and I can't find him. I look over and he's at the fence on the outside and there's a beautiful, smart, incredible little five-year-old girl on the fence on the inside and they are puckered up just about to kiss. <laughs> I stopped that in the name of Jesus. I was like, no, we do not do that. You, that is reserved for only family. There are some things that you have to be family to be entitled to. And his dad's over there like, way to go, son, like Mac Daddy. And I'm like, no, like he's going to be confused about what's allowed and not allowed. And the little girl's parents are here and maybe hearing that story for the first time. So sorry. <laughs> but he wants to marry her. And so we've talked about that and I have made it very clear, you can kiss her when you marry her because then you're family and not until then, kisses are reserved just for family, right? But you can, you can kiss her when you marry her and you'll be in one union, you'll be one family and then you can give her all the kisses you want, but not until then. And that's funny, that picture of, you know, yes, when they're married, they become family. They're, they're in union. And that's what it looks like for us and God. When we come under the blood of Christ, when we give our lives to Jesus, we become, the book, the book says, members of his household, right? We become members of his household. We become part of his family. So he's joining us, self, us to himself in union, but he's also joining himself to us and one another in that union. When I married Elliot, I didn't just get Elliot. I got an incredible new mom. I got an incredible new father-in-law. I got a brother, I got a sister. I have these nieces and nephews. They're mine too, not just Elliot, they're mine too, right? And so, so God, he also reconciles us to one another, to all of humanity. We are all the family of God. Verse 12, it said this, remember at that time you were separated from Israel, Israel being the chosen people or the family of God. And Paul isn't saying this to just remind them as Gentiles, oh, you were less than, right? He's not saying it to humiliate them. He's saying it to humble them, 
right? His purpose was to humble them with perspective of the gospel because their humility would create a heart posture that would allow unity, right? Relational unity, it starts with gospel humility. And as the church, we're called to be one body of Christ. We're called to walk in unity. So Paul doesn't say, you know, you were dead, and I'm going to keep reminding you to keep them down. He does it to keep them humble. And he's saying you can't receive love like this that causes you to belong to God without you then extending that love to your neighbor. Remember, he is building his church, one church, not churches, He's building one church. He's building us as the unified body. Our best hope for that unity is that we would keep a gospel-shaped humility. I didn't read this section when I first read chapter 2. I'm going to read it now. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of these two, thus making peace. Two being the Jew and the Gentile. And in one body to be reconciled, both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far and peace to you who were near, both the Gentile and the Jew. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So the purpose that he had was to create one humanity out of two, thus making peace. When he died on the cross, he didn't just destroy the veil. In verse 14, Paul said that the cross destroyed the wall of hostility. We're super familiar with what it means when the veil tore. We sing about it all the time. But there was actually another division that kept the Gentiles outside of the presence of God other than just that veil. The wall of hostility was actually a place in the temple. If you look at how the tabernacle was built, there was what was called the court of Gentiles. Gentiles meaning non-Jewish. There's a court of Gentiles. And it's where they were kept at bay behind a wall of hostility. Hostility because on the other side of it, where Jews were allowed to go further, they felt elite. On the side where the Gentiles were kept, they felt excluded. So on the cross, Paul says Jesus didn't just tear the wall or the veil, he also destroyed the wall of hostility. He created a, a, a way that not only are we able to go into the holies of holies if we're Jewish, if we were chosen to be part of Israel, but also for all, for all of humanity, right? And this is, this is how we have unity. This is our mandate now as members of the church. You had a commission as a citizen to use the keys he gave you. But you have a mandate as a member of the house, of the family, to bring unity. Right? Jesus' method for the world knowing that we're his church was our love for one another. He said to his disciples, they'll know you are my disciples for your love for one another. Right? And I, I think that Paul used this example of the Jew and the Gentile because in the natural, there couldn't be two groups that could disagree with more, right? In the natural, they disagreed pretty much on everything, but in Christ, they were one. 
And there's nowhere else in the world where people get to see two bodies that are completely different, two groups of people that have nothing, no common ground come together. Only in the church. So it's our mandate to bring unity, to show the love of Christ, to show something different than what the world shows. And in love, it's not an emotion, right? It passes. That emotion of love, it passes. But to Jesus, love is a covenant commitment to put the well-being of others above the well-being of ourselves. It's what he did at the cross. We get to serve one another in love. That's our family business. That's our family business. And the church is the perfect place to cultivate this, to practice your giftings and your talents, your contributions. Get really good at loving the way God loved here. Serve one another in love here and it will overflow out there. It's a natural thing that happens. And you know, we are very aware that we are not perfect people that we're broken people and we need a savior. And so here in the church, yes, there will be conflicts. Yes, there will be offense. Yes, there will be hurts, but we're committed and submitted to, to working through those with honor and with love. So here you get a chance to sharpen your giftings in the house to then serve the world with purpose. I wanna read our key scripture again, but I'm gonna read it in the message version. At first, starting at verse 19, it says this. That's plain enough, isn't it? You were no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You are no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name as Christian as anyone. I'm gonna say it again. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here and what he's building. And I just want to dispel a lie this morning, and that is the lie that you are less loved, that you are less valued than the person sitting next to you. You might not have the ability to sing like Brie or ever-changing epic hair like Pastor Elliot. Your gifting might be something else. But in the household of Jesus, you belong here. You have as much right to the name Christian as anyone. This is your family. We are your family. And it's because the blood of Jesus, right? It, it's not what you do or do not bring to the table. It's not what it's about. And his blood, it's thicker and bigger and better than any mud. And we will spend as much time and energy as it takes to move whatever dirt you come in with to get to the gold in your life. Because we are family. Because you belong here. Because he is using you to build his church. Again, in the message translation going to verse 20, he used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see this taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into a temple in which God is quite at home in which he's quite at home. The original version I read it in, it says, in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. We are a dwelling place. The 
very dwelling place of God. Not just in this room, not just on this property. You are the very dwelling place of God. That means that he both resides and presides in your life. He occupies, he lives there, but he also has a seat of authority there, right? The whole church is where he dwells. Where two or more are gathered, I am in your midst. But Paul is saying that even in the individual, you are the dwelling place, right? The Bible says he's using you brick by brick, stone by stone to build his house. In, in, second, in 1 Peter 2, it defines us as this. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. You're, you're a critical part of the building of the house. You're a critical part. You know, when you go to build a house, you don't just hope the materials are going to be there. You actually have to have some bricks. You actually have to have some stones. You don't just think up the idea and hope it manifests. You have to bring in the materials. And the Bible says in Ephesians, it says, before the foundation of the world, God chose you. You are here by intention. You are here because brick by brick, stone by stone, he wants to use you, utilize you, build you into his house. That's what he wants to do with you. You know, when we um, bought the home we live in right now, we actually looked at over 40 homes. It was a crazy experience until we found the one that we ended up buying. And when we first started looking, we thought we were gonna build a new house. Um, I was so keen to the idea. I thought it'd be great. My mother-in-law was gonna let us, she doesn't know this, she was gonna let us move in for five months while they built our house. It was, she was gonna do a lot of cooking and cleaning and all the things, no, I'm just kidding. But, but that was the idea, right? And we were gonna build a house. And what we ended up doing was buying a house that existed. We bought a house that had some worn baseboards, had some scratched up floors, right? There were some nicks in the paint that some of the finishes weren't as shiny as I would have hoped for the house that we were gonna move into. But there was one thing that was a non-negotiable when we looked for a house that we both knew we had to have. That was an open concept. It was an open concept. We wanted to be able to be in the kitchen and see what was going on in the living room. We didn't want there to be, you know, that closed off feeling. God's looking for a spiritual house. And he's not looking for shiny finishes. He's not looking for brand new flooring, fresh paint. He's looking for an open concept. He's looking for an openness, a willingness to let him move in, let him put, his identity, we moved in all our stuff. We put our choice of colors on the wall. We made it our house. He wants to come in, maybe knock down some walls, maybe sand out some scratches, some scars, put some fresh paint on you. His only criteria is the openness of the believer. That's his only criteria. And when he moves in, he's gonna go to work. 
there's gonna be some construction. And it might hurt when he starts taking a sledgehammer to those walls. When demo day starts, it might hurt. It might be uncomfortable. You might wanna say, no God, leave it alone. I just wanna stay broken and scratched up and scarred. And he's saying, no, let me have access to every room, to every square foot, and the construction, it might hurt, but I'm telling you, wait until you see the transformation he wants to do in you from the inside out. There's nothing like that. So today I wanna ask you, would we be a people who embrace the privilege of being the dwelling place of God? You know, Jesus said that he did nothing apart from what he saw God do because he was fully man, but he was fully man empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I looked it up in the Greek, nothing, it actually means nothing. He did nothing apart from God dwelling in him. Peter's another example, he was just a man, but the Spirit of God dwelled in him and anywhere his shadow hit, miracles started to happen. That's the thing, when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, anywhere your shadow hits, the thing that has been overcoming you will now be overshadowed, right? When he dwells in you completely. Stand with me in this place. Would we be a people today that says, I'm tired of the status quo. I'm tired of letting things that are not in heaven run rampant in my life, in my family, in my community. I'm fed up with settling for less than what God has for me. Would we be a people that are so submitted to being the dwelling place of Jesus? When you're pregnant, when you have a baby in you, you don't just wake up one day and forget that you're pregnant. It changes what you eat, it changes what you think about, what you're planning for, what consumes your thoughts, what consumes your mind, it changes what you're nurturing. Would we be a people that live in such a way that we are aware of the inhabitant in us, that it changes what we think, it changes what we say, it changes what we nurture, it changes what we plan for because we have Christ indwelling in us. There's a seat empty next to you. And would we be a church that does not settle, settle and say, God's, God's okay, he's already built it. No, we would recognize he's not done building his church because there's a seat empty next to you. And I don't say that for the sake of numbers. I say that because that means that there's a person out there who is a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. There's a person out there who is lonely and they're looking for a family. There's a person out there who is empty and in need. So would we be a church in this place that say, I will not settle until God builds his church through me right here at 200 South University and the gates of hell will not prevail it and we will build in such a manner that the world cannot ignore his power and his goodness anymore. 
So if you're in this place today and you've actually never gone from death to life, you've actually never started your personal relationship with Jesus, I wanna give you a moment to respond. Everyone in this place, head, heads bowed, eyes closed, please. This is a personal moment, but I'm not asking if you come to church, you clearly do. I'm asking if there's a moment where you gave your life to Christ and said, I'm done being a citizen of darkness. I wanna be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if you haven't, this is your moment. Just lift your hand in the air. We're gonna pray with you. Thank you. Just go ahead and lift your hands up. Thank you. Thank you. Church, we're gonna pray this out loud, just in agreement as a church here. Say this, pray Jesus. I'm so sorry for my sins and my mistakes. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me by your blood. Thank you that I am no longer a stranger, but a member of your household. Jesus. Fill the emptiness in me with your Holy Spirit and lead me to walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Come on, church. Put your hands together. There are people in this room today that made that decision and there is nothing greater than that as God builds his church. I know we could wrap things up here and we could leave, but I actually asked our prayer partners to come forward. So prayer team, if you would join me up front, we're not gonna leave yet. We're not gonna move up yet because God's not done yet. Because when I asked if there are some things that infiltrate your life that do not infiltrate heaven, God put some things on your mind. Because when you were alone last night and you were crying out to God and you said, Jesus, this is overcoming me. Jesus, this thing is overcoming my child. Jesus, this thing is stealing life from my family and I don't know what to do. God today is answering your prayer and saying, you didn't know what to do, but I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you to get out of your seat, come forward and let one of these people be the Ecclesia of Christ with you. Come bind up what is bound in heaven, come loose things that are loose in heaven. So we're gonna go back into worship, but this is what I wanna ask you to do. If you need a healing in your body, if you need a breakthrough on your finances, if you have a child that is far from God, if there's addiction, depression, anxiety, in, in you or anyone that you've been praying for that's on your heart, let the church be the church. Let them pray for you. Let's not hold back anymore. Let's take what's ours. Come on, church, let's sing. Come on, sing on Christ alone. On Christ alone.